Well, we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians for the better part of a year. And uh, we are in chapter 4. There are only three more verses after today, but they're so wonderful that we're going to spend a week on each one of the verses. But today we're actually going to cover three whole verses 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 15. And this is what it says. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, this sermon divided rather neatly into three sections, one with each of the three verses. 13, 14, and 15. So first let's look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Paul, who wrote this, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And specifically, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the New Testament, especially Acts 9 to 28, and then in this epistle, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, we see details of some of the trauma and hardship that Paul experienced as a result of his efforts to bring the gospel to the Gentiles all over the Roman world. Here in verse 13, Paul explains why it is that he traveled around preaching the gospel of Christ to whoever would listen. In essence, he says here in verse 13, I speak because I believe. In order to make this point, he quotes from Psalm 116 verse 10. Psalm 116 is a psalm written by someone who has gone through great struggles and the Lord has delivered him. And now it's really a song of praise to the Lord for having delivered him in such a wonderful way. Now the psalmist knows that God is a God who is mighty in power to deliver his people. And so in this psalm... Psalm 116, he's testifying to the greatness of God to deliver his people. So it's a fitting psalm that Paul would quote because in the same way Paul, having experienced the saving power of God in his own life when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, now he's speaking to others about This divine saving power that rescued him. Remember that Paul had been 
Mr. Hostility to the early Christians. And now he's been conquered by Jesus and given new life. He has seen the power of Christ to save. At one point, he had put his faith in himself and in his people's traditions. But now he has come to believe in Christ and in the power of Christ's grace to save. And so he speaks. He speaks the truth of Christ. He tells people about the power of the grace of Christ Jesus. I believe, so I speak. So we learn that people who believe also speak. People who believe in Christ are people who speak of Christ. Believing leads to speaking. Believing prompts speaking. Everyone who really gets it, really wants to give it. Believing and speaking go together. There are two words in Greek that are related to one another and have the same root. One is euangelion and one is euangelizo. Euangelion is a noun. Euangelizo is a verb. But they come from the same root, which is good message or good news. The noun, euangelion, refers to the gospel, what we believe. The verb, euangelizo, refers to the proclamation of the gospel. What, something that we do. We get the word evangelical from the word euangelion because it means those who believe the gospel. The good news of Christ. We get the word evangelism and the word evangelize from euangelizo referring to the act of communicating the gospel. But we see in 2 Corinthians 4.13 here, this verse, that evangelical and evangelistic go together. They're really two parts of the whole. Two sides of a coin. When we believe in the power of God, when we believe in the grace of Christ, we are moved to speak it to others. Like the psalmist, we are no longer intimidated by the problems and dilemmas of life. We've seen the power of God to save, and therefore we're eager to tell others about it. When we believe in the power of God to overcome even the darkest gloom, we can speak his word into the lives of others with confidence. Not in ourselves, of course, but in God's mighty grace. Often, God's people find themselves facing a dismal scene. Something that in, for, with human eyes looks hopeless. It might be a family, dysfunctional and unbelieving. It might be a completely secular workplace where sin abounds. It might be a neighborhood with no other Christians in it and 
and no one who seems interested. But remember the prophet Ezekiel. God brought him out to a valley filled with dry, dead bones. And God asked him a question. He said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And God asks the same question of us when we see those scenes in our lives that look so dismally hopeless, so dead. Can these bones live? Well, we better say yes. Because God showed in the story of Ezekiel, he turned the whole valley into a mighty army by bringing flesh to those bones and breathing life into those bodies and turned the dry bones into a great army. And so it is that God can indeed bring life out of death. Who would have ever thought that Saul of Tarsus would would come to life? Who would ever have looked at him and said, yes, these dead bones can live? But they did. Those situations which seem most hopeless, those people which seem too far gone to come to Christ, we don't give up hope. The light of Christ is greater than the darkness of man. We believe, therefore we speak. Now, that's what Paul says. But let's take a minute and just think about what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I feel confident in my ability to convince people, therefore I speak. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I expect to, uh, I, I'm sorry, I expect to receive human approval when I tell others about Christ, therefore I speak. Didn't say that either. I have an outgoing personality. Therefore I speak. Didn't say that. I love to hear myself talk. Therefore I speak. Didn't say that one either. I believe. Therefore I speak. That's where speaking comes from. It comes from believing. When God provides us with an evangelistic opportunity, we need not think about how this person might respond or about how weak we feel or our lack of communication skills. Think about Moses. That's what he was thinking about. God said, go speak to the Pharaoh. And he was just all wrapped up in his own inability. And God said, look, I can handle this. I'm the one who made your tongue and your mouth. I can take care of you to get you to the point where you can say what you need to say. Don't worry about that. You're thinking about the wrong thing. I am with you. That's what's important. Instead of thinking about our own weakness, we can think about God's power. About how he can transform a human life by means of the gospel. 
Now let's move to the second verse, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It seems that it was more than Paul believing which moved him to speak. In verse 14, Paul continues his explanation of why he busies himself with the proclamation of the gospel. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul not only believed, but Paul knew something. He didn't just believe in Christ and what he had done, but he knew something else. He knew something that propelled him into the world to speak boldly about Christ. What did he know? He knew that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise all of his people with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Paul knew what was going to happen at the end of the story. He was so gripped by the anticipation of that moment, so enthralled by the knowledge of the coming of Jesus, the great bridegroom, and the resurrection of his bride, and the great wedding which would follow, that he was compelled to proclaim the good news to those living in darkness in order to make God's elect ready for that day. The glory of the great resurrection on the last day was another thing that fueled Paul to courageously proclaim Christ. His courage and abandon was based on his confident anticipation of that day when the Son of Man would return and restore all things. But there's something else in verse 14 I don't want you to miss. One of the high points, maybe it's because I'm prejudiced and done a lot of this, one of the high points of a wedding is when the father escorts his daughter down the aisle and presents her to the groom. This is the moment that Paul is referring to here in verse 14. When God the Father will present the bride of Christ, that's his church, that's you and me, to the heavenly bridegroom, Jesus. And what a great moment that will be. What a, what a dramatic moment in history that will be. The verse literally reads, Knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. So there's, even though the word present is not in this particular translation, it's very much there in the Greek. And um, the idea is that we're being presented by the Father to the Son. But of course, there's a lot of preparation that has to take place first. Just like every wedding, the bride must be made ready and the bridegroom must prepare a place for the two to dwell together. This is what's happening right now. This is the age in which we live. These are the days before the great wedding of the Lamb and his bride. And the bride is being cleansed for the holiest of days. 
Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the time we have now on earth is the time for the great courtship during which Christ wins his bride and then prepares her to become fully his on that great wedding day. And in heaven during this time, during this age, the bridegroom is busy preparing a home for his beloved that we might dwell together in love. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 2 and 3. And then will come the day when the bridegroom will return and the bride perfected and adorned will be presented to him by the Father. She will dwell with him in perfect union forever. And that wedding day is what this verse is talking about. That we will be raised up and he will present us all together. It's not just, it's not just one of us at a time. It's not each of us individually. It's all of us together. He says, bring us with you into his presence. Or present us with you. We'll be presented all together. And that means that it's not just how holy we are that he's working on. He's also working on the holiness of our relationships with one another. So, we're in this together. And we're in it together for the long haul. For eternity. Now let's go to verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that the, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We see here in Paul that people who are a part of Christ's kingdom, they have a passion for his kingdom. People who believe in Christ long to see the grace of Christ spreading to more and more people. That it may increase thanksgiving being given to God, that God might be more glorified. People who believe are people who long to see thanksgiving abounding to the glory of God. If I were to ask you, or you and, or any bunch of Christians, this question, what would they say? What would you say? What would you say fuels evangelistic zeal? You know, what, what drives us to tell others about Christ? I think probably the first two answers you'd get, the most common answers you'd get, Number one would be, or I don't know which would be first or second, but one would be love and concern for those outside of Christ. And another would be obedience to the command of Christ to, to tell the whole world, to tell others about Christ. 
And those are both very valid motivations. But the motivation that Paul regularly refers to in his writings is the one he mentions here. It's a zeal to see Christ honored. It's a desire to see more and more people come to know Christ and his saving grace that he might receive glory, that he might receive their worship and their praise. It's the longing to see Christ worshipped and acknowledged and appreciated and adored. It's the longing for the fulfillment of John's vision that he records in Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10, where there's this great throng adoring and lifting up high praise to the Lamb of God, their Savior. It's the spirit that drove someone to write and many to sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And it also motivated our closing song today, which says, Our hearts are longing for the glory of the Lord to be made known in all the earth. We want to see the nations bow. We want to hear the rising sound of the worship that He deserves. And that's why we speak. Not, I'm not saying it's the only reason. But that is one of the great compelling reasons why we speak. Maybe the greatest of all. That's why we want to tell the world about Jesus. That's why we want to pray for our non-believing family and friends that they would come to know Christ and try to talk to them about the gospel. That's why we send out missionaries. It's why we pray not only for their health and their protection and their provision, but for their success that many would come to know Christ and know his forgiveness and know his salvation, that God would go into the desert and turn it into a garden of worship for him. That's why we're anxious to hear from our missionaries when they send updates or prayer requests or give reports about the progress of the gospel. Because we long to see the world filled with the knowledge of Christ. To the glory of God. Of course we can't change the hearts of people. We can't turn people into worshipers. But God knows those he's chosen for himself. And he will change their hearts and draw them to himself. And he's chosen to use the proclamation of the gospel as the tool by which he does that work. And that's why we participate in it. And that's why we support it. And that's why we pray for for ourselves in it and for our loved ones in it. Christ has been gracious enough to us that he deserves our praise. And not just us. He deserves the praise of all men. All people are potential worshipers of Jesus. We're not looking for numbers for success so that we can point to our church or to some other group and say, look, we have really done things right. We're looking for worshipers, eternal brothers and sisters that we can stand beside in eternity and sing his praises.
And now let us proclaim the Lord's death as he instructed us by partaking of the Lord's Supper. This reenactment of the atoning work of Christ for sinners. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, you have been so good to us. No one has ever heard of such a great God doing such great things. We praise you that you've given us ears to hear it. And we thank you, dear Lord, for the change of heart that you've wrought in us. We were once your enemies just like Saul of Tarsus. But you took us as your friends, forgiving our sins and showering us with grace even when we were your enemies. And now, Lord, with joy, we come to celebrate you and what you have done and pray that we would go forth from here with joy and with love and with a zeal for your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.